0: This morning, this is, so this is, a, because I'm away, this is going to be the last message in this series, uh, the That'll Preach series, and I want to say thank you to, um, uh, to you for the questions that you submitted this summer. They were great questions. In fact, somebody asked me this week, did you bait those questions, you know, did you? and it's like, no, we did not. They were great questions. In fact, uh, even some of the children here asked some really good questions this summer. In fact, I had two questions that, that were asked of me last last Sunday that I want to share with you just as I begin. These were from children. Uh, One was from, I'm not sure how old she is, maybe nine or ten years old, and she came up to me before the service, and she said, she's been reading her Bible, reading in Genesis, and she said, you know how Adam and Eve have sons? Who did they marry? How would you answer that question? (laughs) It's a tough question, isn't it? Well, I I attempted to answer it. I said, well, if you take this story literally, they had to have married their sisters, right? Because they're they're only human beings on earth. Ooh. (laughs) Well, that begs another question, right? Maybe maybe that begs more questions. She said, well, then how come they're not mentioned? Well, there's a reason why women often aren't mentioned in the Old Testament. So anyway, that would have made a great sermon. The other question came after the service from a little girl, four going on five, who I think may, was, I think it was probably her la- first, first time in church last Sunday. And she, she, I was not the only one who got asked this question. I know at least one other person did as well. She came up to me after the service in wide-eyed wonder, and she said, where is Jesus? What a great question, huh? Again, how would you answer that? I would say, to, take a look around. He's right here in plain sight. So uh, so today's topic, by the way, today's topic you did vote for in a way. Um, it, uh, it was a tie with what I preached last Sunday. Last Sunday's sermon was, what do we do with the sin in our lives after we've been forgiven and uh, saved? And uh, the topic this morning is, has to do with the cost of discipleship. And uh, the scripture that we're in this morning is Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. By the way, this is going to seem like a strange juxtaposition from last Sunday's message because last Sunday we heard about how we're forgiven and set free and and God's grace is, is abundant and it's given to us all as a gift. Today we're going to hear about the enormous cost of being Christ followers. It's going to seem sort of like a juxtaposition or even a sort of a contradiction or paradox. So we're in Luke chapter 14 starting with verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Those are some tough words. That's a tough passage, isn't it? What in the world is Jesus saying? This doesn't sound like the Jesus that we usually hear, who's often commanding us to to love, to love well, to love as he loves, to love the neighbor, to love the other, to love ourselves, to love even our enemies. Why would Jesus insist that we hate our parents, spouse, children, siblings, and our own lives? Hate seems like an awfully strong word. There might be a hint in in Luke's preface to this passage. Uh, Luke says that large, he prefaces Jesus' comments by saying this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now maybe things were getting a little unwieldy. Maybe Jesus wants to thin the crowd a little bit. Maybe he's trying to weed out those who are not so serious followers. Jesus is calling people to either go deeper or go back. Go deeper or go back. It's all or nothing. Hate still is a strong word, though, but it's, it's, it's easy, I think it's as easily misunderstood as the word love is. When we hear about that all the time, we sometimes need to define what we're talking about. But looking at the original Greek word for hate here, missio, that's not going to help us either because it's always translated hate wherever it shows up in the Scriptures. But it is used in different contexts. And so context is going to be the determiner to discern what is it exactly that Jesus is getting at. One commentator, uh, and the context, by the way, is discipleship. One commentator or theologian suggests that the word hate here means to love less. Now, um, uh, that's very possible because uh, there's another word that we often hear in Scripture, evil. Evil isn't always what we think of as something being really dark, dastardly, uh, sinister. Evil, sometimes in the Scripture, depending on the context, can simply mean less than perfect. Okay, so, um, so hate can possibly mean uh, to love less. In other words, it's a matter of uh, allegiance. Uh, when it comes to making a choice, we are to love our family members and friends less than Jesus. It's a matter of allegiance. Jesus isn't talking about an emotional or psychological hatred, but a radical and total commitment that gives absolute priority to Christ. We are to be committed to following Christ above anyone and everything else, even ourselves. And sometimes that will feel like death. Again, keep in mind that Jesus is calling those who follow to be sold out, to be fully devoted followers. Uh, He is calling them uh, to not just be connected, but committed. Not just involved, but but invested. It reminds me a little bit of that adage of the bacon and egg breakfast. You know that, you know that, um, that illustration? Like, what are you talking about? So, um, bacon and egg back breakfast. Uh, the, egg, the, the, the chicken supplies the egg, right? And the pig supplies the bacon. Which means the chicken is, is um, uh, involved, but the pig is committed. Okay? Okay? <laughs> Jesus, yeah, show me the bacon. Um, Jesus is the Christ. He is calling us to deep commitment, not just a decision or mental assent. It is a walk of faith, which, like Jesus' own life and ministry, calls sometimes for service and sacrifice. And if this Christian life isn't worth dying for, then it's not worth living for either. Hence, Jesus declares, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And anyone who was living in the first century who heard Jesus say this, they knew, they knew the significance of what it meant to carry a cross. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a story, an illustration. One, one that comes to mind is this church used to celebrate uh, St. Lucia. And there are churches in the community that still do that because uh, because of the Swedish connection here in Jamestown. But it's actually an Italian story, so it's really it's the perfect story for for uh, Jamestown. It's an Italian story that the Swedes celebrate. If we could just get the Puerto Ricans into the story, it would be it would be the perfect story for, for Jamestown. It'd probably surpass the Comedy Center. So if you don't know the story of Lucia, it's if you think about Christmas time, there's the little girl, blonde hair, wreath. Candles on her head, okay? That's Lucia. That's about all most of us ever know about it. But the story uh, of Lucia is that she was an Italian girl. She lived at a time when Christianity was still not legal in the Roman Empire. And she became a Christian. And she felt compelled to help the poor, especially poor Christians who had forsaken all for the sake of following Christ. Many of them were living in the catacombs in Rome. And uh, so. Uh, Lucia sold her wedding dowry to um, feed the hungry to feed the poor and I think that's where the, the candles on the head comes from she went down into the catacombs into the dark to feed the hungry well the rest of the story is that her husband her, her fiance um, who was not a believer turned her into the authorities because she was a Christian she had sold, given away her, her wedding dowry and he turned her into the authorities and she was burned at the stake True story. Um, so there's, uh, there's a saying, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. The seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. Um, becoming a Christ follower in the first three centuries often came at a price. And yet Christianity grew and spread like wildfire. The church was probably stronger then, even though it was nowhere near as organized or instituted as it is today. Even under Constantine and the centuries that followed, while Christianity was entangled with empire and corrupted by power, being a true follower of Jesus continued to come at a price. And in every age, those who seek to follow Christ, who love mercy, who seek to do justice and walk humbly with God, will often pay the price for that. Rejection or worse. And sometimes sometimes that even comes from organized religion or the institution of the church. There are places in the world still today where following Jesus means isolation. Those who come to Jesus out of a strong Jewish heritage, out of a Muslim cultural context, or in parts of Asia risk rejection from the outset, if in some cases even death. Many times they must choose between following Jesus or keeping peace with their family members. Hence Jesus' words. Few of us will ever have to make such a decision, but that doesn't let us off the hook. And so I want to expand this a bit and ask uh, a few questions of us. And what does it mean for us to hate our own lives? What does it mean for us to carry our own crosses? God wants to have priority in every area of our lives. And discerning what this means uh, for each of us means that we're going to have to interact with God's Word, prayer, active involvement in a healthy Christian community that encourages our walk, and then, of course, listening to God. I can't tell you where God is calling you to go, or what He's calling you to surrender or release, or to take on or to walk away from, or what burden He will lay on you, or what crosses He may ask you to carry. Christ's claim on our lives is going to look different for each of us, and it will change over time. Few of us are ready to surrender all at the outset, right? I think it's a mercy of God that His claim on our lives is gradual and progressive. In fact, if you are sincerely walking with God now, you already know that God is constantly claiming more of our lives for Himself. In his classic work, uh, The the Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who has his own story, right, of carrying a cross and and dying a martyr's death, he he died, he was a German pastor, died in a Nazi concentration camp. He wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, and if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer, Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow Him, knows the journey's end. If you were listening closely last week and this morning, you again may sense a contradiction or a tension. Last week we talked about forgiveness and God's free grace. God showers His grace on us, forgives us all our sins, and welcomes us as His own, each and every one of us. God's grace is free. But it is not cheap. Cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer wrote, is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Jesus made it clear that he loves all, forgives all, welcomes all, but those who come to him are called to give all to him. Following Jesus is costly because it costs us our very lives. It is grace because it gives us life and more life. It is costly because it costs God the life of his son, and what has cost God so dearly cannot be cheap for us. And so when large crowds are following Jesus, he turns and says, count the cost before you follow me any further. Go deeper or go back. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And by the way, if you read on in the scripture there, Jesus gives two illustrations. Who of you, if you build a tower or if you build anything, build a house, whatever, you're going to count the cost before you go into it, right? For fear that you won't be able to finish it. Same thing, he goes, if a king is going to war, he's going to count the cost. He's going to look at his armies, his resources. Do I have what it takes to win this battle? If not, I need to go to my enemy and make make concessions. So Jesus' point is, count the cost, even before you step up. Jesus is calling those who choose to follow him to a deeper walk and a deeper maturity in him. He's laying a foundation of understanding of what it means to be in union with God, to walk with God, and ultimately to become like God. Once you come to God, you have given Him permission to be at work in your life. If you haven't heard, I'm working on another house project these days. Another fixer-upper. It's my cross to bear. No, it's one I've taken on myself, right? I must be nuts. So, um, but there's a metaphor in that. And, this, and presently, that house is in a, still in a state of deconstruction before I can make it new again. There's a metaphor here uh, for the spiritual life. Stay with me. I'm going to suggest that hating oneself in the proper sense, dying to self, carrying the cross, is a kind of deconstruction. Not terribly unlike making a house new again. George MacDonald, who was a writer and a minister who lived uh, in the last half of the 19th century, died in 1905, huge influence on C.S. Lewis. MacDonald wrote these words. He said, imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing, putting up a second floor, adding a tower, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Carrying a cross, dying to self, can mean many things. And I don't really want to give too many examples, but perhaps I should give some. Certainly it means a willingness to lay down your life for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of God, building that kingdom. It may mean that God places on you some burden, some... Uh, some uh, Uh, some weight or burden of compassion or of justice, of making a difference in the world where you want to do that and the cost that that will be. Uh, It will certainly mean uh, a dying to self that can mean the death of ego or the death of a false ego that we spend so much of our lives constructing. Carrying a cross may also mean other difficulties, struggles, hardships, losses, loneliness, sickness, or disease, or some other burden that we are called to live with or to carry. And we think when we look at these things, when we're going through these things, uh, carrying a cross or having to die to something, we think surely there's a better way, a different way. <laughs> Isn't that what Jesus prayed? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If, if there was some other way, we would want that, Right? But often there's not another way. This is the way that God is at work and there are good things that come from it. Uh, it It is the cross that keeps us on our knees, grounded, humble, and depending on God each step of the way. One of the only ways that God can seem to get our attention or help move us toward greater maturity is to go through some sort of suffering or loss. This is why Christians hang the cross in the center of their worship spaces. It's why we make the sign of the cross. It's why we say that we are saved by the cross. And despite the prominence that we have given to the cross in the church, we seem to not really believe what the cross teaches us. That the pattern of death and resurrection is for us too. Not just Jesus. It's the pattern for us as well. That we must die in a foundational way or any talk of rebirth makes no sense. Nothing but the cross is strong enough to make us let go of our egos or our false egos. However we've defined ourselves as successful, moral, better than, right, good, on top of it, number one, it all has to fail us. The cross is a reminder that there can be no new life without death. No resurrection without crucifixion. It was true for Jesus and it is true for us, whether we embrace it or not. And admittedly, you and I are Americans. We don't like discomfort. We don't like to deny ourselves anything. It is really hard for us to bear the cross, to deny ourselves, to to uh, die to ourselves. It, it, culturally, for us, you're going to walk away from here this morning, probably some of you thinking, what was that? That's not what I signed up for. I thought that when I came to God, I'd get nothing but blessings. Well, it is nothing but blessings. But some of those blessings come with a bit of pain and discomfort and death. It's probably what prompted C.S. Lewis to write, God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing that we most need and the thing that we most hide from. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, uh, we find it humbling, daunting, perhaps even in some sense terrifying to know the cost of discipleship, what you call us to. God, you are with us in this journey. We cannot cannot do one thing apart from you. No decision, no commitment, no surrender, no death. None of it, Lord, can we do apart from you. And so, God, we acknowledge to you our own sense of helplessness and our own strategies to preserve our own lives and and well-being and egos. But, God, we have given you permission to be at work in our lives. We are trusting your goodness. We are trusting your love for us. God, we are trusting that your grace is at work in our lives in ways that bring us life and more life. And when we are called upon to carry a cross, when we are called upon to surrender, to turn away from, to deny ourselves, to die to something, God, give us the strength, the desire, the willingness, the volition to follow you. Lord, you are indeed our only comfort, our strength, our hope. You are also the supreme terror. Help us, God, not to be afraid. Help us to be reminded and assured of your great love for us because perfect love casts out fear. We have no reason, God, to fear you or what you desire to do in our lives. So God, help us with all our hearts to give ourselves fully to you for your glory and for our neighbor's good. In Jesus' name, amen.